From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Next year, Colorado families will get 10 hours of free preschool. The bill was just signed into law, but there are lots of details to work out. Like how customizable are those 10 hours? A Chalkbeat reporter runs through what we know and don't. Then, to support the metaverse, the cable industry will have to be fast. Speeds that are just mind-boggling. And later, pianist and composer Mary D. Watkins. She remembers when Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. She was a kid in Pueblo then, around Till's age. Watkins' new opera is a tribute to Till and his mother. It was almost like I could send my blessing to his mother, Mamie Till, and to him. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Four-year-olds can go to preschool in Colorado for free starting fall of next year, at least part-time. Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law Monday giving families access to 10 hours weekly. But there are still many questions to be answered, says Chalkbeat reporter Ann Shimke, and welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Let's start with what we know. What can families count on at this point? So families of four-year-olds will have access to, like you said, 10 hours a week. So that's about a half day, um, three or four days a week. Um, That will be available to all four-year-olds. The state also plans to provide additional hours for children with the highest needs. Um, what's unclear now is the eligibility criteria for that or the number of children who will get those extra hours. So Mm. those still have to be worked out, but there are some families who will maybe get a full day of preschool. Okay. Well, let's say that for the vast majority of families, that 10 hour chunk is available. Does that make a lick of difference for parents or guardians who work 30, 40 or more hours? So yeah, you bring up a good point. It's definitely tough for working families. I think what it will do is decrease the cost that they're paying for, you know, preschool or childcare. So those 10 free hours can be added on to, you know, what they pay with tuition. Families may also get childcare subsidies if they're low income. So um, it it does decrease their costs. Um, some families may only want that half day of preschool. Typically in other states with universal preschool, there's about 70 to 75% of four-year-olds who enroll. So clearly there it is um, a program that families want, even if it's not enough to kind of give the 
the care they need for work schedules. Okay. And then I imagine that parents face all sorts of questions about whether those hours can be spent at one facility, but then you take your child to another, and could those hours be customized and spread out as you wish? Do we have answers there yet? No, I think those are some of the details to be worked out. Um, I will say one feature of this new universal program is that families will be able to get those free preschool hours at the preschool of their choice. So that could be a school district classroom. It could be a private child care center where that child has gone up until the age of four. It could be a church-based preschool. It could even be a home-based provider that is licensed by the state. So maybe a neighbor down the street offers licensed preschool. So families will have a lot of choices um, in terms of where they send their their kids. I guess those choices, though, do depend on how many providers there are in a given area. We can talk about that in a bit. And Shimke from Chalkbeat. But to some of the unanswered questions, like quality standards. So your publication, Chalkbeat, reports that Colorado's current preschool program Uh, which is obviously a smaller scale, only meets four of 10 benchmarks established by something called the National Institute for Early Education Research. It's like, what's an acceptable number of benchmarks when it comes to quality as this much larger program rolls out? Yeah, the quality question is a huge one um, for Colorado and the Um, leaders of this effort have said they want to provide high quality preschool for every child. Well, right now, our smaller existing preschool program really wouldn't meet a lot of key quality standards. Um, Just to give a quick example, uh, preschool teachers in Colorado um, that work in the current state funded program, they don't have have to have a bachelor's degree. Hmm. Um, That is one of the quality standards from that research institute you mentioned. Um, But that also brings up a question, like it's an extremely low paid field. So do we expect teachers who, who get sometimes, you know, barely livable wages to get a four year college degree? And I think those are some of the discussions Colorado is going to have to have in the coming months to decide, do we meet that col- that quality standard? And if so, what kind of help are those teachers without bachelor's degrees going to get to, to meet that goal? And how much time are they going to have to do it? That's another issue. In our last conversation with Governor Jared Polis, we talked a bit about this preschool program. And uh, he made it seem like there were dollars for training to make sure that there are high-quality providers and that they be retained. Let's talk a little bit about what's paying for all of this. So there is a tobacco tax, right, that is sort of the foundation of uh, the money here. And then there are recovery funds, I think, being injected into this too. Help us understand the landscape. Yeah, so yes, and I should mention there are already efforts going on right now to try to increase that the workforce and beef up the pipeline of potential preschool teachers. So right now the state is offering 
two free community college classes um, that would be kind of the um, starting point for your uh, certification as an early childhood teacher. So um, there's also uh, some state-funded apprenticeship and mentoring programs. Um, so there's quite a few things underway. I think the big question is whether that's going to be enough um, to get Colorado where it needs to be in the next year or so. As far as funding for the overall preschool program. So like you said, there's a nicotine tax um, that voters approved in 2020. Um, in the first year of that program, that's gonna bring in say around $165 million. In addition, the current preschool program, which is funded at around say 125 million, that money is gonna be combined with the nicotine proceeds. So say in the first year, there's going to be around $300 million that will support the program itself. Okay, I understand that four other states, Florida, Oklahoma, I think it's Vermont and Wisconsin, have programs similar to this. Have they shown promise? Um, Yes, absolutely. Like I was saying before, there's they're fairly popular in the sense that a lot of families around three quarters of families take advantage of these programs. I think what most of these States have seen is that like we talked about before, a half day does not always work for working families. Um, They've also seen that the, the idea that you, you can send kids to preschool in different settings does work really well for families. It can um, sometimes be closer to their work um, or it can provide that wraparound care in the afternoon that maybe the 10 hours of preschool or 15, depending on the state, doesn't offer. So I think the, I think the other states that have it do feel like it's successful, but I don't think anybody feels like it's a, a perfect program that's reaching all the kids who need it. Um, rural areas, I think, is an issue. For example, in Oklahoma, they said they they have trouble reaching all the kids um, that are, are eligible in rural areas. I think Colorado may have some of those issues as well, um, partly just because of the shortage of providers. Indeed. Thank you so much, Anne, for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And Shimke, senior reporter at Shockbeat. Governor Jared Polis signed a bill into law this week to provide 10 hours of free preschool to four-year-olds in Colorado. It'll go into effect fall 2023. And we'll be right back with a man who, if he plays his cards right, might get you to like your cable provider more. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio. And your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID shutdowns changed work and school overnight. 
Suddenly it was Zoom meetings and Google Classroom delivered into most homes by the cable industry. The technology that transformed old school cables into an information superhighway was conceived of in the 1990s at a research lab in Louisville. It's called Cable Labs, and the CEO is Phil McKinney. He's just been named CEO of the Year by the Colorado Technology Association. Phil, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I have to say I took some heart in the fact that when we connected this video chat, uh, you struggled like the rest of us because there are so many different platforms. It was immediately humanizing. Yeah, it's the challenges of uh, technologies, right? We're all uh, trying to adapt and take advantage of. COVID put the pressure on a lot of people to uh, figure it all out, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Okay, so if the pandemic had hit a decade earlier, could we have worked and attended school online? Would the infrastructure have been in place? Well, I think the infrastructure would have been in place. We would not have had tools. If you remember 10 years ago, primarily the only video conferencing system that was out there was either large enterprise systems like HP Halo or uh, Skype. I think the combination of broadband and bandwidth with where we've advanced is what allowed us to work, live, learn from home. Cable Labs is often described as Cable's version of Bell Labs, the legendary research arm of the telephone company founded by Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, Do you like that comparison? Do you think it works? Well, I think it works. I think it's probably the closest comparison someone could try to apply to Cable Labs. You know, we're very unique in the fact that we create no products. We create no services. (laughs) We are purely a research and innovation lab for the industry. So what's percolating right now, I suppose, that isn't top secret that you could tell us about? (laughs) One primary focus is for our research is on the next generation networks. You know, we've got the science worked out for 10 gigabit services today, but we're we're marching way beyond um, that speed into speeds that are just mind boggling. And as a result, We're excited about what kind of services those are going to uh, create. But it's not just about speed. We spend a lot of time on security and privacy of information, network reliability as people through COVID became more dependent on the network. How do we increase and improve uh, availability and reliability? Okay, you mentioned 10G and you kind of like zoomed right past it as if uh, 10G shouldn't impress me. I mean, I'm looking at my phone right now and I've got, uh, how many G do I have on my phone? Four, five. Like, so are we at 10 now? Well, keep in mind that when you talk about like 5G in the mobile world, the G stands for generations. The uh, optimal target speed for a 5G device, phone, whatever, is one gigabit. It's available in very, very small areas. You can get one gig types of speed. When we talk about 10G in the form of broadband networks like cable, today about 84% of all U.S. homes have access to one gig service from their cable operator. We're on the march to deliver 10 gigabits, and that's 10 gigabits upstream and 10 gigabits on the download. And we're already seeing clear paths, service offerings already marching along this path. 
to 10G. And Cable Labs, our science research, we're we're done with 10G. We're on to the next thing way beyond 10 gigabits. At one point, you called these speeds mind-boggling. Help mm-hmm. us understand how this boggles even your mind. What haven't consumers like myself envisioned that you're envisioning is possible in a world like this? Well, I mean, we've seen a lot of chatter most recently about new kinds of online experiences, the metaverse being the the term used. So you've got an uh, like an avatar that you would play in a game, but now you actually are that avatar. It's digitally you projected into the network and you interact, you do commerce, you work in the metaverse. This is a future that is really transformative of how society is going to interact. To make that metaverse feel real, like you're literally in that space, mm-hmm. there's a lot of technologies that have to be developed. One of those technologies is holographics, holographic displays, making everything look and feel 3D. They require very, very big pipes, big broadband networks. And when you see those kinds of displays, the early, early prototype versions of those kinds of technologies, you quickly figure out that the future, in my case, what my grandkids are going to enjoy is going to be radically different Hmm. from what we experience today when we say we get on the Internet. But it's so funny to be talking about the metaverse and really in the same breath, cable, because I think it's easy to think of cable as like a 20th century technology. I mean, at its simplest The industry dug trenches into the ground, sometimes along old railroad lines, and ran, you know, TV wires to houses. Uh, Now those cables that brought us MTV are transmitting vast amounts of data. This is all because of a technology, by the way, I think called DOCSIS. Can you square this like old school technology with all the newfangled stuff that you're talking about? Sure. The... Cable industry originally started off with solving the problem with rural TV back when your only choice of getting TV was over an antenna. And if you were in the rural part of the country or if you were too far from a major city, you didn't get any TV. You had nothing. The cable industry started off with putting up really big towers on the tops of mountains and then running the cable down into small rural areas in order to to allow farming communities to have access to normal broadcast TV. Well, once you start building that network, when you start running physical cables in the ground, trenching it, that becomes a real asset. That's the biggest cost is the actual construction. Once you've built it, then you want to maximize its capabilities. So in the 90s, the industry worked together to invent DOCSIS, which is data over cable. So that allowed for the very first transmission of data using what had always historically been used to bring TV signals into the home. Hmm. And back then it was one one megabit and two megabits. We got to 10, eventually we got to 20 and 30, and then it's been off to the races. We've talked about the rollout of these, uh, as you've said, mind-boggling technologies and speeds How does Cable Labs work to ensure that that's rolled out in a more equitable way? One of our specific research areas is what we call addressing the digital divide. And there's two elements to digital divide. There's affordability 
and then also availability. And we work on that by developing technologies that reduce the cost significantly. And then uh, reach, how do we make it easier and cheaper to construct networks so that you can get into the rural parts where there's lower populations, fewer houses per square mile? How do you do that effectively? Does anyone like their cable provider, do you think? (laughs) I think everybody that has any kind of an infrastructure dependency, whether it be your water, your gas, your electric, you know, do people really go out and, you know, shake hands for the electric utility guys and say, thank you? No, <laughs> they scream and yell when, when a tree branch goes down and takes your electric line offline. It's expected to always be there and always be available and always work perfectly. I think it's just part and parcel of the industry you're in. And, uh, you know, look, my entire career, I've worked in mobile and fixed lines and satellites and microwave. It doesn't matter whether you're the cable guy, the telecom guy, the electric utility guy, (laughs) you will be viewed on as as needing to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, people get upset. Phil, thanks so much for being with us. Congrats on the award. Thank you very much. Phil McKinney of Louisville-based Cable Labs was named CEO of the Year by the Colorado Technology Association. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a composer whose music celebrates civil rights icons and the Black experience in America. Mary D. Watkins grew up in Pueblo and started piano at age three. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Of all of Colorado's beautiful places, a scene photographed more than most is the Maroon Bells, the pair of purple and white striped 14ers near Aspen. To see them at sunrise, reflected perfectly in Maroon Lake below, is simply stunning. The peaks get their unique color and streaked appearance from mudstone, which can be crumbly and fragile and dangerous to climb. There's a U.S. Forest Service sign at an access trail. It warns, quote, the rock is downsloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills without warning. It goes on to say, expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died here. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance. Words to consider before you climb the Maroon Bells, also known as the Deadly Bells. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Civil rights and the Black experience in America loom large in the works of composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins. Her latest is an opera about Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy who was kidnapped, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi in 1955.
Watkins remembers the murder vividly. She was around the same age when it happened. She's now 82, lives in Oakland, California, but she was born in Denver and grew up in Pueblo. Mary, thank you for being with us. Happy to be with you. Thank you for asking me. Should it surprise us that you're still creating music at age 82? No, I don't think so. Bach, Handel, a lot of those guys uh, created into their old age. The ones that lived long enough, anyway. (laughs) Your mother put you in piano lessons, I think, when you were three. Do I have that right? Yeah, I was almost four. I was three years and nine months. And she thought it would be a good idea for, uh, well, she always wanted a little girl to play the piano because she wanted to play piano and she never had the opportunity to take lessons. So it was like, as soon as she thought it was possible, she had me start piano lessons. Did you like the piano lessons? Were you game? (laughs) To tell you the truth, no. I mean, it was like, okay. I was pretty young, you know. I remember them teaching me to count. And my mother said I was counting in my sleep. So she thought maybe that was a a little, uh, maybe a little too much pressure (laughs) on me, you know. So they dealt with it, and I dealt with it. Do you mean like counting beats? Yes, yes. You know, like eighth notes, one uh, one and two. And and I would, you know, I just... (laughs) (laughs) I was doing it in my sleep. What were some of your first audiences? Well, in those days, they used to have uh, luncheons and they would have tea parties. (laughs) Some Sunday afternoons, they would have tea parties. And I don't know, I guess they were raising money for for whatever. And uh, everybody had a piano in those days. And so I would play a little song that I'd learned at the tea party and that I remember one time sitting at the piano and when I finished I didn't know what to do and my mother had to come get me and I was still pretty young. You mentioned Sundays. I wonder if if church was ever uh, a place you played. That did come into play Uh, when I was eight years old. We were people that went to church every Sunday. I was used to church music and That was not a strange place for me at all. When I was eight years old, they decided to have a little junior choir. And there were about 10 of us kids. And I was the pianist. And so every fifth Sunday, the junior choir would have the whole service. We would provide all the music. I remember some of the hymns that we sang. I thought they were kind of empty, you know, kind of dry. So I would add notes here and there, fill them out a little bit. And my mother sort of caught on to that. And, you know, I remember her telling me, stop doing that. Because I had a tendency to play by ear. In fact, that's what I liked the most. Hmm. But I wasn't supposed to do that. So I didn't do it except when nobody was around to, (laughs) you know, put a stop to it. Do you remember a hymn you modified? <laughs> oh, any of them. Any of them. I, mean, I think we used to do Holy, 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 There's a Fountain. and Oh, one that kind of moved and had rhythm and was fun. We used to sing, Oh, When the Saints Go Marching. Oh, yes. 
that was my chance to, you know, play and to bring some life to the music. I always had my own ideas about how music ought to sound. I guess early signs, not only of you as a composer, but also as a jazz performer, which we'll talk about. So you were born in Denver, raised in Pueblo. Was Colorado a good place to grow up, would you say? Yeah, I think it was. I wanted to get out of Colorado as soon as I got to be up in age, but it's a good place for kids. Why did you want to escape? Well, at a certain point, it didn't have what I wanted in any way, really. I just wanted to get work, meet new people, have more available choices about life and, you know, just a little more excitement. Pueblo was kind of a sleepy town for me. Was it a racist town? It it was as racist as most northern towns were at that time. Uh, I think I never saw any Black people uh, working in places like um, where the public would have to interact with them. The only jobs they had were, you know, janitorial, that kind of stuff, made. And we could not eat in restaurants. That was forbidden. That didn't change for a long time. Uh, We just knew that that's the way it was. And we knew that racism existed and that it was, we weren't happy about it, but we lived with it. And I didn't encounter much of it at school, though. So it was starting to, you know, for the younger generations, open up a little bit. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are speaking with the Colorado-born and raised composer, Mary D. Watkins. Our colleagues at CPR Classical introduced us to your piece, Soul of Remembrance, from 1993's Five Movements in Color. This is the New Black Music Repertory Ensemble performing. Uh, What's being remembered here and whose soul, Mary? It's the soul of the people, the soul of the Black people, the African-American. They're beginning in this uh, country, on this continent. And it's about hope. It's about acceptance of certain, well, a certain certainties, but it certainly is a piece about hope. It's a slow march, kind of marching toward the future, just steadily moving and and doing what, what could be done. 
It occurs to me as you speak how hard it must have been to have hope in shackles. Yes. Uh, well, the people were Christianized, and I think a lot of them brought with them also part of the spirituality from Africa. Mm-hmm. But since the tribes were all uh, mixed up, I mean, people were really um, separated from anything they knew or anybody they knew. But I think the spirituality uh, and the Christianizing of the people is what gave them hope. be like if I stepped into your imagination as you composed something? Like, is it a visual experience? Is it an auditory experience? Do you feel it in your body? I feel it in my body. It's auditory. To some extent, it is visual. For instance, for some reason, I always associate Soul of Remembrance with the color blue. It's kind of blue silver and that to me is a spiritual color is there a color that for lack of a better term you haven't yet painted in (laughs) probably not probably not okay so you've got some yellows you've got reds you got greens these all have emerged musically for you yeah i mean they are these colors are associated with pitches And, of course, we're not just dealing with single pitches most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's quite colorful. It's kind of flashing. For instance, the uh, fourth movement has a lot of red or dark red, cranberry red. Mm. I, I guess that's the dominant color that comes to mind. I think of red as an angry color. Is it anger? Well, it's called Slow Burn. Uh-huh. That's the name of the movement, it, and it's not a fast-moving uh, uh, violence or anything like that, but it is about weariness of waiting. Uh, same old, same old. left Colorado for Washington, D.C. and Howard University, where you graduated with a degree in composition, eventually landing in Oakland, California, where you've lived now for decades. Yes. In addition to your classical work, you're also an accomplished jazz performer and composer, which I understand dates back to your time at Adams State in Alamosa. That's where I first tried jazz. I remember uh, jazz was very different from classical in that they would give you um, a lead sheet with the melody, and that's all. They'd have the chord symbols above the staff, and I was not used to that. I I didn't really know how to read chord symbols. Hmm. 
I knew some of the tunes that we were playing so I could play them by ear. But every now and then they pull something up that I didn't know. So that's where I became um, acquainted with jazz. Was it freeing? Was it scary? It was fun. That It was fun. It was all the things that you were sort of restrained from doing in church, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this about, I mean, we'll be just back up a second. I actually came to really love playing for church. I love the music. And if you listen to a lot of my music, you know where I've come from. Mm-hmm. My experience with jazz was that it was it was freeing in many respects. On the other hand, I had this uh, mentality of perfectionism. In other words, it took me a while to relax and know that there were no mistakes. Whatever you played became a part of the music, and mm. you were very free to explore and to go where you needed to go within certain bounds. Boy, that sounds therapeutic. I need jazz just to get past some of my perfectionism, Mary. Thanks for thanks for the therapy session. <laughs> I'd like to talk about your latest project. You began working on Emmett Till, a new American opera, after meeting the librettist Claire Koss in 2013. She approached you to compose the music. The opera is based on a play of hers, and you've called your role a labor of love. What drew you to the Till Project? Well, first of all, I had written before that, just before that, an opera called Dark River. Oh, yes, the Fannie Lou Hamer story. Yes, yes, Fannie Lou Hamer and SNCC, and it was about the voter registration in Mississippi in the 60s. So. I was kind of open to something like Emmett Till anyway. Emmett Till, I remember when he was murdered. And that I'll never forget. I was very, very affected, deeply affected by that. And mostly when I wasn't feeling grief, I was feeling rage. I I just was so angry that this could happen in America And um, I felt so bad for his mother, and I just couldn't believe the the lack of any empathy at all for his mother. So what I felt myself feeling quite a lot of the times was this helpless, powerless kind of anger about the Emmettil. And it stayed with me for a long time. I followed it in the, you know, magazines. I remember the Look Magazine article where they admitted that they murdered him. And you would have been about the same age as Till. Yeah, he was He was 14 and I was 15. And you, you talk about Look Magazine, you talk about the visuals as well, because I think of his mother, Mamie, who insisted her son have an open casket funeral. I mean, yes, the, the visual of his mangled body became a catalyst in the civil rights movement. In her words, I wanted the world to see what they did to my boy. Yeah. And I'll say that that image sticks out in my mind from my schooling. 
And so was working on this opera a way to channel all of that raw emotion? It was, gosh, I, it was almost like I could send my blessing. I could send my blessings to his mother, Mamie Till, and to him, you know. Um, that's first and foremost what flowed through me as I worked on this opera. Uh, I worked through probably my anger, my rage about it. I don't feel that now. It was a very good project for me. But in a way, yes, it was like a prayer for Emmett and a prayer for his family. From the opera, here's mezzo-soprano Lucia Bradford, who performs the role of Mamie Till. Thinking of Mamie Till, thinking of Fannie Lou Hamer, do you ever imagine what it would have been like to meet these women? Uh, I hadn't really thought much about it, but for Mamie, of course, I would have wanted to comfort her and really work with her. She didn't, I don't think, march, but she went all over the country talking to people and never ever was there any trace of hatred or rage. She didn't seem to feel the rage I felt, you know. And what about Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, I just admired Fannie Lou Hamer. She was, it seemed to me from everything I read about her and listened to, I listened to lots of tapes and watched her on her documentaries. And it was just like, she was pretty in your face in that she was not afraid to tell you what she thought. She was not shy about asking for what she wanted and, you know, demanding what she needed. And I admired her a great deal. Leading up to its premiere, Emmett Till, the opera, received some backlash mainly aimed at your collaborator, librettist Claire Koss. Koss, who is white, grew up in the South at the time of Till's murder, and so she was deeply affected by it. The critiques centered around her inclusion of a fictional white school teacher in a story of Black trauma. Koss says the character 
is intended to represent the silence of good people. So a petition circulated to have the opera canceled. Uh, The Black Opera Alliance also denounced the production. Uh, For you, Mary Watkins, this opera was a labor of love. So what was it like to suddenly have to be on the defensive? Well, several things. I thought it was just on the face of it, it was ridiculous. That's because I knew the story. And what was ridiculous to me was the fact that the uh, criticism was not based on having seen the opera or read the libretto or even people, I think, who knew very much about Emmett Till. The argument was that this white woman had no right to, she was exploiting black pain. It it implied that she was doing this to further her career. And both of us are in our 80s, of course, we weren't thinking about that at all. (laughs) It just was based on a knee-jerk kind of thing. It was one woman who did this, and people just jumped on the bandwagon and signed this petition, not really knowing what they were signing. Of course, based on what she said, yeah, of course, I mean, if that had been true, but it wasn't true that uh, it was uh, a white woman exploiting black pain for entertainment purposes. Did you ever get to reach out to the person who circulated the petition? I did. I did. We had a meeting. The person didn't really know anything about opera, first of all. Not really. She was calling it a show at one point. She called it a play. She didn't know that operas are usually, uh, that it's the composer who stands out, not the librettist. Nobody knows who uh, wrote the libretto for most of the uh, famous operas that are out there. So she was not a dumb person. I could tell that. She was intelligent, just ignorant of the facts. And she just didn't know what she was talking about. And it doesn't seem to me she's old enough to have thought through what this was about. Because one of the things we needed to point out to her was that we needed allies. And Clara had been an ally from the time she was in college. So, you know, we can't, uh, we need each other. And uh, the young lady still feels that it should have been a Black person who wrote the libretto. Actually, I think it's a good thing. I think one of its strengths is that a white woman and a Black woman created this work of art. I want to talk briefly about role models, or, or maybe the lack of them. So... Late last year, Terence Blanchard made history as the first Black composer to have a work presented by the Metropolitan Opera. That's yeah. the, the first time in 138 years of history. Um, mm-hmm. So with that in mind, Mary Watkins, as a woman, a woman of color, did you crave role models who looked like you? Well, I felt like I would have liked that. They weren't there, so I just went for it. You know, <laughs> whoever was... Uh, I, the only models I had were, were white, basically, European uh, Is it true models. that Liberace was a model for you? <laughs> Do I have that right? Well, Liberace was a pianist. And up until the time I first saw him, I was not at all interested in practicing it or 
<laughs> you know, it just was like I wanted to be outside playing with my neighbor's kids, you know, my brother. And um, uh, you, you need a bigger candelabra, though, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I thought when I saw him, I thought, oh, my God, that's why my mom wants me to practice. And maybe if I practice, I could play that well. Well, I'd like to go out on another piece of music of yours from 2019. Before we hear The Initiate, uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, that was commissioned by the National Women's Music Festival in 2016. It was about sort of going out, taking risks, some of them dangerous, experiencing life, and finding your way back home. Mary, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Composer and pianist Mary D. Watkins, who's still making music at age 82. She was born in Denver and grew up in Pueblo. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. (laughs) ¶¶